Did I have a nice weekend? I can't remember. That was ages ago. Did I have a... Yeah, I must have had a nice weekend. Yeah, I got invited out by students for a meal on Saturday night and Sunday night. That couldn't be better. Nothing could be better, really, could it? So it's really great, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And, um, and I heard some jazz on Friday night, so, you know, you know my, week, my, my weekend is therefore complete. Yeah. Um, first, I apologize for the confusion about when the class happens. Um, the, uh, my, my classes regularly run from 6.30 to 9.20, um, but by accident, the schedule put it on as if it was an, uh, a 5 to 9 class. Um, they did send the schedule um, to us all for us to check out that it was right, and I didn't see that it was wrong. Um, so it's, uh, it's partly my fault, and uh, I apologize for that. Um, I've had one person t say to me, please don't change it from being 6.30, which is what it says in the, in the uh, syllabus, because I don't finish work till 6 o'clock, and I can't get there, therefore, if it starts earlier than that. Um, and so my present plan is that we should do it in accordance with the, with the timing as appears in the uh, syllabus and the course notes. Um, but if anybody is going to have their life ruined by that because they got to drive to Monterey at the end of each class um, and won't get home until it's time to come back again, um, then uh, email me and we can talk about that. But my present intention is to that we shall run from 6.30 to 9.20. Uh, part of the background is that it only needs to be a three-hour class in, actually in the classroom uh, because each week you do uh, one hour of work on Moodle uh, where you post your homework before each class and where you make comments on the homework of other people in your group. Um, if you haven't enrolled, to, uh, enrolled on Moodle uh, by now, you should have done, really, um, but it's okay. But enroll on, on Moodle when you get home tonight or during the class now or something like that uh, so that first thing in the morning I can make the magic work that turns you all into groups. Um, and then you will find that when you um, post your homework, uh, you, you'll be able to see the homework of the other four or five people um, in your group, and they're the people whose homework you'll then comment on. Uh, the um, syllabus and course notes explain how all this works and tell you exactly what to do. Uh, I shall not spend the next half an hour um, explaining that, because you can read. Uh, but if the, you uh, have read the syllabus, um, particularly the opening, the first 13 pages that are about how everything works. Um, or if tonight or tomorrow you read it and there are things you're not clear about, then by all means send me an email and uh, I will uh, clarify it for you. Um, and that's really all I intend to do by way of explaining how the course works because it's a waste of time and boring standing here doing that. And it's much more fun to get into reading the Bible, right? Um, and so I am going to do that uh, first by, as we shall at the beginning of each evening, reading a passage from Scripture uh, and inviting you to listen to it as the Word of God uh, and see what it says to you. Uh, and each time, uh, you're welcome to ask questions about the passage that we've looked at, uh, that I've read, but you're not welcome to ask those questions at this point in the class because this is, this is the post-critical point even though at the moment we're still pre-critical and haven't even been critical. But normally when you come to class, you've gone through the pre-critical and the critical thing, and that's the point at which we try to let it be the word of God to us again, let it speak to us. Um, but I will um, uh, kind of anticipate that procedure tonight, 
and simply invite you to listen to, to, to Amos chapter 7 uh, and see what it says to you. Because um, here's a guy talking about being a prophet. This is what the Lord Yahweh showed me. He was forming locusts. At the time the latter growth began to sprout, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, Lord Yahweh, forgive, I beg you. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. Yahweh relented concerning this. It shall not be, said Yahweh. This is what the Lord Yahweh showed me. The Lord Yahweh was calling for a shower of fire and it devoured the great deep and it was eating up the land. Then I said, Lord Yahweh, cease, I beg you. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. <coughs> Yahweh relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord Yahweh. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And Yahweh said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, see, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to King Jeroboam of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the very center of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, Seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, earn your bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered Amaziah, I am no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I am a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. And Yahweh took me from following the flock. And Yahweh said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of Yahweh. You say, do not prophesy against Israel. Do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus says Yahweh, Your wife shall become a prostitute in the city. Your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be parceled out by line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land. And Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land.
reactions, thoughts. Mm -hmm. It's quite a vengeful side of God we're seeing right now. Mm -hmm. Yep. We'll see a lot of that. Yep. Is familiar. Negotiating with Yahweh. Yeah. Which is kind of the other side, really, to the... To the there's God who's, who's uh, set on punishing, but there's part of the prophet's job is actually to say, I oh, don't do it. You could rethink that, couldn't you? And God's saying... Well, okay. Yeah, yeah. There's actually trickinesses about the uh, the tenses there, but um, but the way the, the NRS3 takes it, certainly, um, and the key thing is, I'm not a prophet because it was my idea or because I've been to seminary. Being sem Going to seminary does not qualify you for being a prophet. Um, but, 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 but Yahweh took me, yeah. And I'm, 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 I'm a farmer. But Yahweh took me. And I'm still a farmer at heart. Yeah. See, I said don't ask questions. She sits there. She can never stop asking questions. Sorry, we wish to say something. Um, because you don't need somebody to bring good news. You don't need a prophet to bring good news. Pastors can bring good news. Well, I think a lot of times when we're talking about people prophesying now, like, um, especially in like, uh, charismatic or Pentecostal churches that I've been to, most of the time it's them giving you a word, and the word is like, generally every time that I've heard something, it's always been positive, <coughs> and it's always been like, God's going to bring you a mm. new harvest, yeah. like, and mm. all that. Mm. So that's why I was wondering why. Yeah. All... Why are they so weird when we've got it right, you mean? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know you didn't mean that. Yeah. 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 It, you got it, sister. Yeah, right. Okay. How suspicious that usually for us, prophecy is positive, whereas usually for the prophets, it's negative. Um, we shall sing uh, the song I always like to think, sing at the beginning of uh, a course, not unrelated to uh, what we are just talking about, because we're asking for God to be our vision and shape our vision. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Now my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Be thou my wisdom, a lamp to my feet, thy word like honey to my lips is sweet. Thou my delight, my joy, thy command. My dwelling ever be the palm of thy hand. Gracious God, we ask that as we come to 
uh, read the stories of the prophets and read the prophetic word and think about the prophets themselves, you may protect us from hearing only what we want to hear and open us to hear what the scriptures need to say to us so that you may indeed be our vision. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we, I need to get you to fill in the VCA forms, uh, so uh, uh, just pass it around and do it. Oh, it's only got, I think we shall run out of space. So if, you're, if when it arrives, it's run out of space, then just start writing on the back. Um, so I'm going to start you off on page uh, 15 of the uh, course notes, which says that, where it says at the top, the prophets, who, what they are. Uh, if um, you haven't downloaded the course notes, then uh, try to sit next to somebody over whose shoulder uh, you can look. Uh, for tonight's purposes, that doesn't count as plagiarism. Um, if, ever my, if ever I say things like page 15 and the prophets, who, what they are, and the page numbers and what I say don't match, please tell me. Does that one work all right? Yeah, sometimes they go, you know, for weird reasons. Sometimes it goes astray in the middle, but uh, I hope it'll work okay. The, the fuller Old Testament um, courses are divided up according to, what, to the way that the synagogue divides up the Old Testament. Uh, the books in the Old Testament, uh, according to the synagogue, are exactly the same as they are according, at least, to the Protestant church. Uh, they are what we, call the, what we call the Old Testament, though for obvious reasons um, the synagogue doesn't call them the Old Testament. Um, they are uh, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings uh, in the usual uh, speak of the synagogue. Uh, they use the acronym Tanakh, the first letter of each of those words in Hebrew. Um, Torah, T for Torah, uh, N for Nevi'im, which is prophets, and K for Ketuvim, which is writings. They are the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. And so the fuller Old Testament course works in accordance with that way of dividing up the Old Testament. Um, the uh, strange thing about that, uh, that from our point of view, then, is half of what we'll be studying in the prophets isn't what you would think of as the prophets. Because as I've said at the top of that sheet, uh, the, the prophets in a Jewish way of thinking comprise... Joshua and Judges and Samuel and Kings, which is a bit surprising for us, uh, before they comprise Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 shorter prophets, which is what we think of, roughly, as the prophets. So we'll be spending uh, the first uh, two or three evenings uh, on the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, before we move into the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets, the 12 shorter prophets. Note that Daniel, uh, then, isn't a prophet. This is really weird, because you knew Daniel was a prophet. In fact, you thought Daniel was the kind of archetypal prophet, really, didn't you? Not according to the Old Testament. Uh, Daniel isn't described as a prophet in the Old Testament. He's described as a wise man. And you can see why that is. Um, he does sometimes function uh, like a prophet, 
But in Old Testament thinking, he's not a prophet, he's a wise man. He's a man who gets revelations from God, but as a wise man rather than as a prophet. Um, and in the arrangement uh, in the synagogue's order of the Old Testament, then Daniel doesn't come among the prophets. Daniel uh, comes in the writings in the third chunk. So if you came to the course thinking that now you were going to understand Daniel, bad luck. You'll have to come back in the fall and uh, I'll uh, show you how you don't, still don't understand Daniel in the context of when we study the writings rather than in the context of the study of the prophets. So what that starts to establish already is that not all prophets are in the prophets, as I've said um, in the sheet there, but I'll put a small p for the first time the prophets comes there uh, and, a, and a big p the second time that, that the prophets comes. Um, Abraham is the first prophet uh, in the Bible. That's weird. Um, though why Abraham is called a prophet, it's quite explicit in Genesis, links with one of those things about Amos um, just now. That is, Amos is described as a prophet, uh, 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 Abraham is described as a prophet because he's somebody who can pray for you. Uh, and that begins to show us how the, uh, the point about being a prophet is, is, standing, is, the, is the fact that you stand in between the people and God. Not in a bad sense, but as a mediator between the people and God. You, you are the person who belongs to both sides of that relationship. You belong to the people because you're a human being. You belong to God because, as that passage from Amos uh, indicates, God called you and made you into a prophet. God, as Amos puts it elsewhere, and Jeremiah does and some of the others, God took you uh, into the court, into the meeting of the uh, heavenly cabinet, the place where they decide things. And because you are a member of the heavenly cabinet, that means that you discover things that God is going to do, and therefore you can rush back down and tell people what God is going to do. But it also means that because you discover things that God is going to do, you're in, a, you're in a position to do that thing that Amos does and say to God, you can't do that. And sometimes God will say, okay, the cabinet has not quite made its decision yet or the cabinet can reconsider its decision. We'll, uh, we'll decide on something different. You won't always get that as those passages, uh, that, that, that part of Amos itself actually indicates. But sometimes, at least, you'll be able to influence the decisions of the heavenly cabinet. Your job then is to speak on behalf of the cabinet to um, the people on earth, but also to speak on, the people, uh, on, the, on behalf of the people on earth to the heavenly cabinet. And uh, Abraham is called a prophet because he fulfills the second uh, of those functions. Hello? Hello. When you say prophet, do you refer to, like, just the Godhead on its own? Or are you, talking, are you including angels in there as well? Because some scripture talks about God and... When I talk the cabinet, when I, when I talk about the cabinet, the cabinet, that's exactly what I mean. That it's 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 uh, it, it's God and the, if you like, it's God and the angels, God God and his aides, God God and his cabinet, God and, and his uh, the people who go out and execute, um, who, who take part in the decision making process and, and then go out and execute execute God's decisions. Um, you'll find uh, Amos and especially Jeremiah chapter twenty three uh, talking about that. We'll. Uh, look at that a bit more later on. 1 Kings 22, story of Micaiah. There, there are several passages that, that picture God um, as the chair 
uh, of the cabinet that is making the decisions about what's to happen on earth. So Abraham is the first prophet, and he's way outside the prophets, but he's there for that kind of reason. Uh, uh, Miriam uh, is a prophet, um, and she's a prophet in, because she's involved in leading the people in worship and declaring uh, what it is that God has done. She's involved in praise um, as a prophet. Uh, what that's likewise then showing is that prophet in the Old Testament means something different from what it means for Christians. Already uh, our understanding, our assumptions about what the word prophet will mean uh, are being broadened out by the way that the Old Testament talks about prophets and in part by the very fact that prophets don't just appear in the prophets. Prophets small p don't just appear uh, amongst the prophets big p. The difference between a prophet, what's the difference between a prophet and a king? Well, let's leave out the word leaders because that's a very kind of vague notion. Uh, I, can actually, I can answer the question, prophets and kings. I think leaders makes it a bit more, uh, the, the notion of leaders is such a broad one. And so it's more helpful to say, if you like, both prophets and kings are leaders, but they're different sorts of leaders. Kings uh, are people who um, have a, a position of official leadership. There's no doubt that the king uh, is the person who, make, who decides things for the nation. Um, Whereas a prophet is somebody who has no place uh, in the official authority structure of the nation. Uh, and that is actually what raises the um, light that lies behind the, uh, the issues that that passage in Amos chapter 7 raises. Because there you have a king who is in charge of what happens in the nation. Um, but then along you, ha you have this country bumpkin from uh, uh, the next nation down the street who wants to come and expect that he will declare what the nation ought to do. Um, and, and so both of these guys are exercising leadership, but they're exercising leadership on a quite different basis. Um, the one on the basis of the position that he's in officially, the other on the basis of the position that he says that God has given him. Um, prophets, by definition, um, are not people who have a position like that uh, of an official, um, don't have an official position in the structure of the way the society works and the way that kings do. Yeah? My microphone quit. It's disappeared. It quit. Oh, you just quit. How's that? Is it, was it better before, you mean? No, it's, oh, okay, let's try that. How's that? that? Does that sound better? No answers. Yes. Thank you. Thanks, Jennifer. Prophets leading them in the wars. We didn't very often do that.
prophets, prophets say what God will do, uh, but, but they, aren't, they aren't so much involved in doing it. They, they talk. They don't do anything. Prophets are no earthly use. Uh, all they do is say uh, what should happen or what God is going to do. Um, another way of looking at the, the, the prophet-king, an illustration of the prophet-king relationship, actually is the relationship between Moses and Pharaoh, where Moses doesn't do anything to bring the Israelites out of Egypt apart from perform silly tricks um, and, and say things to the king, uh, but precisely by his word challenges the king about who is really in control here, um, that despite the, the Pharaoh being the guy who has the position of authority in the land, um, he can't resist what Yahweh is going to do. Not what Moses is going to do, but what Yahweh is going to do. Do you try and say something? Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, so, uh, the former prophets. Uh, why are these books, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, given that title? Uh, well, here are at least some, not necessarily the right answer to why they're given that title, but at least some things it makes you think about, some implications of that title. One possible reason is that traditionally the so-called former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, were reckoned to be written by prophets, Samuel, Gad, Nathan, Jeremiah, were the guys who wrote the former prophets. Uh, and that would be uh, a, a statement of the conviction, of the awareness that God was involved in the producing of these they were produced by inspiration, if you like. Another significance of thinking about these books as the former prophets is that they provide you with the background for the prophets. That is, if you want to know what was going on in Israel and in Judah, in Ephraim and Judah, in the time of Amos and Micah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on, then um, the story, particularly uh, in the books of Kings, gives you the answer, or part of the answer to that question. You come to understand some more uh, why, for instance, um, God was being um, as uh, uh, vengeful, to use your word, uh, in the books of the prophets when you see the kind of things that were going on um, as the former prophets described them. The former prophets tell you stories about the prophets, some of the most interesting stories about prophets, especially about Elijah uh, and Elisha, but about Micaiah, whom I mentioned just now, um, and Huldah, um, the, uh, the prophetess whom uh, Josiah goes to consult uh, when uh, a book of the Torah is discovered in the temple and the king is worried about what implications it has. The former prophets tell you stories about prophets operating. The former prophets give you a prophetic view on Israel's history as the sphere of God's acts. These stories from Joshua in Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings are not mere history. Uh, I apologize to those of you who think history is terrific. I think history is boring. Oh, I can't, how could I have said such a thing? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, if only you could get the words back into your mouth. But, you know, sometimes, occasionally in grade school, history was boring, right? Just, just things that happened. 
these books are not simply telling you the history of Israel. Um, they, they are giving you a theological view, what you could call a prophetic view, God, a God's eye view of what was going on in the period from Joshua uh, through to the collapse of Judah in 587. And they are describing history not merely in terms of what was going on economically or sociologically or militarily or something, what history would mean when somebody writes a history book now. But they are talking about history as a sphere in which God is active. They're talking to you about what God was doing in history. Um, to put the same point a bit more sharply, they're talking about how God's word functions in history. Because they're talking about declarations that God had made, for instance, about how the people would get into the land and how they ought to behave in the land uh, and what would follow from actions uh, of different kinds on the part of different kings and the nation at different points, declaring what God's word is and then showing how God's word is effective in the story, how God's word comes true uh, for good or for ill in the story. They are prophetic also, in that they are powerful and they speak beyond uh, the original context of their writing. It's another aspect of their not being merely history. By virtue of there being something that God was involved in the producing of, they weren't significant merely for the period in which they were written. They, they were uh, prophetic words, are words that achieve things. When God says something, things happen. And so these are powerful stories that have an impact way beyond the context from which, for which they were originally written. They speak beyond that context precisely because they are giving you key truths about the way that God was acting in this key story of God's relationship with Israel. They have all sorts of implications that, made them, that make them speak beyond their original context. They are prophetic in the sense that they are true, truthful, and reliable. That doesn't have to mean that at every point they are factual. The basic storyline from Joshua through to Kings, I believe, is factual. But on the way through, precisely in order to communicate with people, uh, the, the people who wrote these books were, were, were quite happy to include material other than the purely factual. Uh, and we'll discuss the implications of that um, as we go along. It's another sense in which they're not, mere, they're not, not only are they not merely history, sometimes they aren't even history, because they're concerned not merely to record some things that happened, but to bring home uh, something of the nature of God by telling the story that they're telling. And in all, in all those ways, these history books, as Christians have usually thought of them, um, are prophetic books. In the order uh, of the English Bible, then the narrative books, the history books, come all together. They're being, these books being separated out and associated with the prophets in the order in the synagogue draws your attention to their prophetic nature. But when you look in uh, textbooks about Joshua to Kings, the way in which in critical study these books are described is as the Deuteronomistic history. Hence the next uh, heading on that page 15. 
Joshua to Kings as the Deuteronomistic history. That is, what you have in the books from Joshua to Kings is an account of the story of um, Israel that's written from the point of view of Deuteronomy, you could say. That is, Deuteronomy tells people, uh, tells the people how to live in the land and, and what will follow from their living in the land in accordance with the kind of things that Deuteronomy says or their failing to live in the land in accordance with what Deuteronomy says. Uh, and the books from Joshua to Kings then tell the story of Israel from Joshua's day through to the exile gaining its clues to interpreting what happened from those challenges, promises, warnings of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy provides the key for understanding the story all the way from Joshua through to the exile. That's why it's a Deuteronomistic history, because it's a history written in the light of Deuteronomy. So, Joshua to Kings starts off in Joshua chapter 1, with a challenge to obedience of the kind that Deuteronomy itself has issued. And it closes off in Joshua 23 to 24 with some some covenant making which reminds you of the kind of covenant making that happened uh, in Deuteronomy that again brings up to date for a new generation uh, the demands and the nature and the challenge and the promise of a relationship with God sealed as a covenant of the kind that uh, was resealed on the edge of the land in Deuteronomy uh, and is resealed once again in those chapters at the end of Joshua. Judges tells you a a story that's, uh, 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 well, a series of really nasty stories. You won't like Judges. You will be asking, why is this in the Bible? I could watch, uh, she likes likes Judges. Um, You will think, okay, this is all right on late night TV or on on cable TV, but why is this in the Bible? Um, and uh, part of the answer uh, is, or part of the, what makes it different uh, from um, cable TV, is the, the pattern of disobedience to the kind of challenge that Deuteronomy had given, that Judges keeps illustrating, in which people take no notice of the kind of thing that the Torah had said, uh, and get into trouble for it, um, and, uh, and then God rescues them, and things are okay between the people and God again for a while until the cycle restarts. Uh, it's a story of a, an ongoing cycle of relationship, um, a pattern of disobedience. That runs into the beginning of, um, of 1 Samuel, and uh, the, in a way, the people's request then that they should have a king is another expression of that resistance to God because um, it involves not having God as king. And and so the uh, origin of the monarchy in 1 Samuel chapters 8 to 12 is described in terms of uh, is described in terms of the ambivalence, the the idea of having kings. On the one hand you're asking for a king as an act of rebellion against God as king. On the other uh, okay then if you're going to have a king uh, I'll choose who it's going to be. And yet uh, this is the kind of trouble, says Samuel, the kind of the, 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 the kings are going to bring you. Mm-hmm. Between judges and kings. 
The difference between judges and kings is that judges arise like prophets. That is, no, nobody, uh, no, nobody appoint, nobody elects a judge. And they have the authority of a king, um, but they don't necessarily have that authority for life, and they aren't in a position to carry, to, to, to carry on, to pass on their authority to um, their uh, successors. Um, and in fact, most of the judges operate locally. They aren't um, in control of the kingdom as a whole. So they are a kind of halfway stage between having nothing at all and having institutional kingship. The ambivalence of kingship comes out in different ways in the story of Saul and the story of David and the story uh, of Solomon, uh, the three kings who rule Israel as a whole. Uh, all of them are guys who start well but end pretty badly. The God's promise and God's challenge to David uh, is one that in a way reasserts once more the, some of the kind of priorities the priority of particular of obedience to God's word uh, that, applied, uh, that applies from in Deuteronomy. Solomon's prayer uh, at the time of the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8 is a prayer that takes up themes from Deuteronomy. But, but those three kings and Solomon perhaps in particular sow the seeds for various forms of dissolution of the nation after Solomon's day. So immediately after Solomon's day, the nation splits into two. And you have two nations, whom uh, I will usually refer to as Ephraim um, and Judah. The Old Testament itself quite often refers to the northern kingdom as Israel, because most of Israel is there. But obviously that then becomes confusing, because when you say the word Israel, you don't know who you're, talk who you're talking about now. So uh, the prophets also sometimes refer to the northern kingdom as Ephraim, uh, and that's the nomenclature uh, I will try to use um, in order that we can be clear what we're talking about. So then Israel refers to the entire people as a whole. Ephraim and Judah refers to the two, which was only a nation, uh, one nation in the time of Saul and David and Solomon. Ephraim and Judah refers to the, to the two nations um, that emerged from Israel for the period from after Solomon's day through to the exile. Through the story, from after Solomon's day uh, through to the end of two kings, you get another pattern of disobedience, not the same as the one in Judah, uh, but comparable with it, uh, in which you get an account of each king's reign and about how far he did um, obey uh, Yahweh, do the kind of thing that the Torah said, and how far he didn't, uh, and how the results of that play out in his reign. It's failure to do the kind of thing that Deuteronomy said that explains why Ephraim falls in fulfillment of Amos's prophecy uh, not long after uh, Amos's own day. And it's because of a failure to do the kind of thing that Deuteronomy says that Judah itself eventually falls. Just before that happens, uh, King Josiah tries to reform the nation of Judah, in light of the kind of things that Deuteronomy says. When they have found this Torah scroll, which seems to be a version of Deuteronomy, in the temple, and Josiah goes and asks the prophetess Huldah what to do about it, 
and she tells him uh, about the importance of doing what Yahweh says um, and if you are to avoid Yahweh's judgment. And Josiah goes about that kind of reform, but uh, it doesn't produce any permanent fruit. Uh, and so in 587, Judah falls to the Babylonians in the same way as uh, earlier Ephraim had fallen to the Assyrians. Uh, it's a, a popular critical view, uh, particularly in this country, that the first edition of the Deuteronomistic History was written in the time of Josiah. Uh, and it could then be a more upbeat history because it could tell the story as one that's got a good ending. And the US likes a good ending, so you can see why. It was, it's a Hollywood version of the story, really. Um, if that's so, then uh, the, the, uh, the fir a first edition of the Deuteronomistic History was produced in Josiah's day. But then um, the, the version that we have uh, in the Old Testament is the second or the third uh, version of the story. Because it turns out that the Hollywood version was wrong, was too optimistic. What a surprise! Uh, because the nation did not reform itself in the kind of way that Josiah was looking for. And eventually Judah does fall to Babylon. And um, the version of the story that emerged in the context of the exile was one in which it, 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 one that faced the fact that exile had come upon the people for their uh, disobedience to Yahweh, their failure to do what Yahweh said, essentially their failure to do the kind of thing that Deuteronomy expected. The Deuteronomistic history then constitutes what has been described as a vast act of confession. What it does is say, yes, that, that's the, here's the true story of how we have lived over the past 400 years. Uh, and, and this is the story that we need to own if there is to be any future for us. I've said two or three uh, editions of the Deuteronomistic History uh, because the Hollywood guys um, have the last word, as they usually do. Otherwise, nobody will come and watch the movie. Um, and the books of Kings actually close with uh, a little vignette of hope when in the 37th year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the king of Babylon releases King Jehoiakim in Babylon from prison, speaks kindly to him, gives him a seat above all the other seats of the kings who are with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put aside his prison clothes. Every day of his life he dined regularly in the king's presence. For his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, a portion every day, as long as he lived. Uh, just the tiniest glimmer of hope at the end of the story. Maybe God hasn't finished with us. We can't know that because all we're in a position to do is to cast ourselves upon God's mercy. That's what, in a way, Joshua the Kings in the end does. But the fact... Um, that the guy who, if he was back in Judah, would be the Davidic king, gets released from prison, is just a little glimmer of hope that gives us something to hold on to by way of the possibility that God hasn't finished with us yet. Which is in keeping with Deuteronomy itself. Because Deuteronomy promises 
that if the people um, turn, if the people disobey and they get taken off into exile, uh, but then in exile they turn back to God, it's possible for God to restore them. Deuteronomy encourages them to have hope for the end. The Deuteronomistic history gives you just that tiny hope, uh, that tiny uh, opening of a possibility that this is not the end. That's Joshua to Kings as the Deuteronomistic history. A last way of looking at it in the last few lines of that page, Joshua to Kings as the second half of Israel's story from Abraham to the deportation or Abraham to the exile. Because Genesis to Kings as a whole is one gargantuan huge story. The divisions between the books from Genesis to Kings uh, are a bit artificial. It's not so much like a series of Hollywood movies. It's like a series um, of a series uh, of uh, one of those um, TV programs like Lost, uh, where where every year uh, you go through 13 episodes or 26 episodes or 39 episodes or whatever it is, and then it comes to an end which isn't an end, a cliffhanger in May. Um, in order to get you to come back to watch in September. And so the end of each series uh, is, is an end, but it isn't an end. Uh, and that's true about uh, the way that Genesis to Kings works. When you come to the end of Genesis, you've come to a kind of end, but you haven't come to an end, because Abraham's promise has been partly fulfilled, but not entirely. And when you get to the end of Exodus, you've come to a kind of end with the building of the tabernacle, but it's not a real end, because they're still at Sinai. And likewise, the end of Leviticus and the end of Numbers, and then the end of Deuteronomy itself, when they're on the edge of the land, well, that's not much of an end. And then the end of Joshua, when they have come into the land, but Joshua has told you on the way through its story that they haven't conquered all the land, so you wonder what happens next. Then you read Judges, and you wish you hadn't bothered, uh, and that certainly can't be the end. And then when you read into one, to the, through 1 Samuel, uh, you, don't know what, you want to know what's, happen, what's going to happen uh, next with regard to um, the destiny of the nation when you read into 2 Samuel. And the end of 2 Samuel doesn't come to an end because you want to know who's going to succeed David. And, uh, and you come to the end of 1 Kings and you haven't come to an end. You come to the end of 2 Kings and you know you've come to an end because when you, when you turn over the page, you get what? Uh, you get... Did you say Genesis? Well, nearly, um, uh, in the sense that you get, you get Adam, because, because when you turn, in the English Bible, when you turn over the page at the end of, at the end of Kings, you, 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 and you open 1 Chronicles, it's, the first word is Adam. So you're going right back to the beginning. Um, when you turn over the page at the end of Kings in the Hebrew Bible, you get Isaiah. So you know you've come to an end, um, even though it's not a very satisfactory end because the story doesn't kind of continue. Genesis to Kings, then, is one vast whole, with, uh, I mean, whole, W-H-O-L-E, um, with Deuteronomy at the center of it. Genesis to Deuteronomy takes Israel's ancestors and Israel itself from Babylon to the edge of the Promised Land. Joshua to Kings takes Israel from the Promised Land back to Babylon. Oh, thank you very much. Um, the story in Joshua to Kings is the story of human obedience and, and divine success and or of human sin and divine failure. Rudolf Bultmann, who you know is a bad guy, uh, <laughs> describes the Old Testament as a whole 
as the story of the miscarriage of God's plan, which is why you need plan B or C or D or whatever you're going to count the New Testament as. I'm not sure that's a very good description of the Old Testament as a whole, but it's quite, quite a good description of Genesis to Kings. Uh, it's a story of, of a plan of God's that doesn't reach um, fulfillment by the end of the story. So uh, the former prophets, you can look at, the, or the books rather, from Joshua to Kings, you can look at illuminatingly in these three different ways. They are the former prophets. Um, they are the Deuteronomistic history. They are the second half of Israel's story that takes uh, the people from Abram um, to the exile. Um, now, what we shall do now is... If you turn on to page 18, where it says questions on Joshua, um, you say it says at the t see it says at the top there, read Joshua 1 and or Joshua 23 and or Joshua 24. Um, so uh, that's what you're going to do quietly for uh, five minutes or so. Um, and the questions I invite you to think about, take, take, choose one of those to, uh, uh, to read. Um, and ask yourself those, the, 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 the questions on that sheet. What's the message of this chapter in itself? <coughs> and then, what would it say in the context of Josiah's reform? If you are these people who've been in rebellion against God and have just discovered uh, what the Torah says, and now you ought, to, you, ought, you ought to sort yourselves out, what would Joshua chapter 1 say to you? Or supposing your people who have been taken off, um, who have experienced the fall of Jerusalem and been taken off into exile, what would Joshua chapter 1 say, or what would, what would one, whichever of these chapters it is, say in the context of the fall of Jerusalem and the exile? And then, what would you like to know about those chapters? Now, take one of those, uh, read those, uh, let's say for till till half past seven for nine minutes, um, and jot some things down, um, and then we'll have a look at it for a bit. Okay, go. If you've um, if you haven't got a Bible, then um, you uh, go to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect whatever you collect in American money. Pardon? Online. But but obviously you should be able to find it online if you haven't got a, a hard copy Bible. Yeah. Does anybody who's not got a hard copy Bible but got their computer not know how to find a chapter? Everybody happy? Okay, well, read one of those chapters and see what you can see to the answers to some of those questions. <laughs> 